Well, it's really nice to be uh, with you. If you have your Bibles, we're going to read first of all, before we do anything else, we're going to read from Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15. Just a well-known story, parable of the lost sheep. So Luke 15, if you're following in your Bibles, and from verse from verse 1. <clears throat> now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep? until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. And then if you've got your Bibles, can we turn now to Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, another of Jesus' parables. So Matthew 20 from verse 1, Matthew 20 verse 1, where Jesus says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner, those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. Well, amen, and may God bless his word to us, and may he give us understanding of it, and uh, to his name be the glory <coughs> and the praise. It uh, is a, a real delight for me to uh, be here today, even though the circumstances obviously are sad and will cause us uh, pain. But uh, I, I'm feeling, as I stand here, I'm feeling a wee bit like a, a, a golfer who's let through by the people in front of him. 
I don't know if any of you play golf, but that's a, that's a nightmare scenario for me. And it seems it's a nightmare scenario for every golfer. I remember not terribly long ago, my friend and I, we haven't been played, uh, playing golf terribly long, but we were uh, standing to, to take our tee shot. And there was another man who was just on his own, and we thought, well, we'll let him through. And uh, the excuses began immediately. I haven't played for nine months, he said. I'm using a borrowed club. I had an operation on my hip three months ago. And then he hit this glorious shot that I hope to live long enough to hit one day. But that's what golfers are like, and I think I'm a golfer by DNA. Because I, I want to tell you, I haven't had long to prepare for these talks today. And I uh, also want to tell you that I might use a stool because I've got a, I've got a lung thing at the moment. And uh, if I sit down, don't worry about me. It's just I'll feel better that way. Um, it reminds me of uh, when I first started out. I've been a minister for 30 years um, this year. And when I first started out, I used to get sent round to visit these uh, supposedly housebound people. It didn't seem to stop them. Whatever was wrong with them didn't seem to stop them getting to the bingo in a force nine gale but it stopped them getting to church on a Sunday morning. And when I asked them, you know, it's a long time since we've seen you, they would say, oh, son, the last time I was in church, I, I took a turn. I, I never found what these turns were. They're sort of an eternal mystery like chalk circles or something or chalk drawings on the hillside. But if I sit down, it shows I don't take a turn and uh, can get on with them um, speaking. This is all these people's revenge for my thinking evil thoughts about them. But it is, uh, it's really nice to be with you today. And uh, uh, it's a marvelous theme that we're going to think about, just discovering the Father's love. And I would say that since the mid-90s, there's been a, a change of framework for all sorts of uh, people and for all sorts of ministries. Sometimes that happens, that God just shifts us into a whole new framework. It happens in the Bible. Do you remember when Peter had a had a trance. You remember when he was up on the roof and he had a trance and he was told to rise and kill and eat. And he said, I've never eaten anything unclean. And that was God's way of getting him ready for the, the ministry to the Gentiles. And that was a whole change of framework for Peter. It just wasn't in his mind. It should have been because Jesus had told him that he had other sheep that weren't of Peter's fold and he must go and call them too so that there would be one flock one shepherd. It wasn't that he hadn't told them, but somehow it just hadn't registered. And you can trace that in all sorts of ways with the disciples. He told them that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die and be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the elders of the people and all that they were going to do to him. He told them, and yet it didn't register. He told them he was going to die. You see, he was giving them a, a whole new framework for what messiahship would look like, for what the savior of Israel would look like. And though being told and told and told, it was such a shift of framework that they found it difficult to get. <clears throat> I believe since the mid-90s that God's been giving, as I say, many of his people in many ministries a whole new framework in which to live and from which to minister. And the essence of it is just the Father heart of God. See, I think in the past in our ministries, this is in a way revision to what I, I said the first time I, I was ever here at the well. 
I think that probably in born-again circles, the emphasis of salvation up until the mid-90s is what we'd been saved from. We'd been saved from our sin. We'd been saved from guilt. We'd been saved from hell, from death, and so on. And I don't want to minimize that. Every one of us here knows that by the mercy of God, we have been saved by these, from these things. But there wasn't really enough emphasis on what we'd been saved into. And according to the Bible, it's very, very clear that if we are in Christ, which is the Bible's way sometimes of summing up what it means to be a Christian, if we're actually in Christ, then I've not just been saved from what I deserve. I've been taken into what I definitely don't deserve. Because if I'm in Christ, then the Father says over me exactly what he says over his son, Jesus. I don't know if you were here the first time I was ever at the well, but I, I showed you an illustration by way of uh, McCory Tenboom that she used to illustrate that truth by holding up her thumb. So will we just do that? Let's just hold out, out our thumb. And she said, there's your life. And then she would close her fingers around it and say, there's your life in Christ. And then she would put her other hand around that hand and say, there's your life hid with Christ in the love of God the Father. It's a good thing to remember. You can add that to your daily devotions. Because if I'm in Christ, then that means that exactly what the Father says over Jesus, he says over me. Is the Father ever going to say to Jesus, get out of my sight, you're a real disappointment to me? He's never going to say that. Yet some of us feel that the Father is disappointed in us. Is the Father ever going to say to Jesus, I'm fed up with you? He's never going to say it. And yet secretly some of us probably hear today that the Father is disappointed. We think he's disappointed. We think he's a bit fed up with us. And actually that verse that was up on screen earlier, he actually rejoices over us with singing. He says over his son, you're my son whom I love. You bring me great joy. And if I'm in Christ, then he says it over me. You're my son, my daughter whom I love. And you bring me great joy. You know, there's been so much teaching on that since the, the mid-90s. And yet I think I have to say that many people still don't get it. That many people, even in this auditorium today, you'll not believe that the Father dances over you and rejoices over you. But he does. He sings songs about you. Again, this is just revision. We'll get on to new stuff in a minute. But I think I maybe told you when I was last here that Morag, my wife, she had a, a dream one night. And in the dream, she saw Jesus singing from a book. And he was singing to row upon row of angels. And the cameras that were zoomed in on the book. And do you know what it said? It said songs about Kenny. That's songs about me. And Jesus was singing from this book songs about Kenny. And then at the end of singing one song, he said to all the angels, and he thumbed through the book, and he said, I've got lots more. Do you want to hear another one? And the angels were sitting going, oh, no. <laughs> He's surely not going to sing another one about Kenny. Do you believe he sings songs about you? I do. Because he loves you. And he rejoices over you with festal singing and festal dancing. 
And yet, despite all the teaching that there's been that for the last, say, 15 years or whatever, I think the number one problem that I meet pastorally with believers is that they're just not at rest in the Father's love. Thinking towards this conference today, um, I, I was praying and I remembered a picture that the Lord gave me when I was trying to help somebody back home in Wester Hills with this type of thing. And what I saw was just the, their portrait just falling off the wall. And as I saw this uh, portrait tumbling, I saw there was other portraits up on the wall and there were self-portraits and they were tumbling down. And do you remember that game Tetris? Have you ever played Tetris? These falling bricks that you have to turn and get into place and then they slot into place and make another row, as it were. And I saw that happening. And I felt God saying, you know, that one of the problems with regard to finding our rest in the Father's love is this whole business of our self-image. How we think about ourselves. You see, if I want to know what you really believe about God this morning, I would not ask you about what do you, what do you know about the Bible. I would not ask you what charismatic experiences have you had. Because I've found people who know the Bible from front to back and the other way and know everything there is about the Bible, I do not send souls at rest in the Father's love. I find people who speak in tongues who have ministries who are used in healing or deliverance, and sometimes they're not at rest in the Father's love. If I want to know what you really believe about God, then all I need to ask you is this. How do you think about yourself? How do you think about yourself? Because that will tell me what you really believe about God, and that will tell me how you really think of Him. I've just found it almost a 100% rule, in fact, a 100% rule, that the image we have of God feeds into the image we have of ourselves, and the image we have of ourselves feeds into the image we have of God. And it can either be a very good and a very healthy circle, or it can be a very vicious one and a very destructive one. And if I look back over my life, I see that every move forward in terms of God has also been coupled with a new understanding of myself. And which comes first? It can be a bit chicken and egg situation. I think for me, it's usually a new revelation of God brings a new image of self, brings a new understanding of God but it can work the other way, chicken and egg type of thing. So I just want to ask you to sit with this question in the, in the first talk. How do you think about yourself? We could put that same question in another way that's maybe more God-centered. Why does God love you? Why does God love you? I just want you to think of that as we, we look at some uh, very, very <clears throat> familiar Bible passages. You know, we, we live in days of skepticism, and sometimes it's ministers and theologians that trumpet their skepticism. And of course, there's lots of ministers, lots of theologians hardly believe anything about the miracles or the death and resurrection of Jesus or the virgin birth and so on. But even some of the most skeptical people they will say that if you really want to get to the heart of what Jesus was about, then you go to the parables. 
and you look at them, and if you look at them, you'll really find the very original core of what Jesus was about. If I was to ask you what the ministry of Jesus was about, I, I wonder what you would say. It seems to me that looking at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are, there are two major emphases, really. Uh, and the first is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So much of what Jesus was about was declaring that this kingdom of heaven had come close to people. So many of the parables are about that mystery, of the mystery of the presence of the kingdom, this kingdom that we're waiting for at the end of time, <clears throat> where there'll be no more sickness and no more suffering, where, where death itself is past and will not be troubled by Satan or sickness or sin anymore. So often the parables are about this mystery that that future time, it's actually beginning now. What does that kingdom look like and how do we receive that kingdom and how do we become part of that kingdom? How do we minister in that kingdom? That's what many of the parables are about. But the other main emphasis of Jesus' ministry was, was and you see this predominantly in John's gospel, is actually the revelation of who God is, not just what he does in terms of his kingdom, but who he is by nature. And Jesus just loved to reveal God as Father. He loved to reveal the Father heart of God. And John's purpose in writing that the gospel was that we would see who Jesus is, so that in seeing who Jesus is, we would see who the Father is, and through knowing the Father and the Son, we might have eternal life. We read two of the, the most famous parables of Jesus earlier on in, in the, 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 this meeting. Think for a minute about the story of the lost sheep. It's such a well-known story. Think of it in the light of your image of yourself or the more positive question, why does God love you? And I think sometimes we so deal with bits of the Bible that we so explain them away that we rob them of all their amazing truth. I've heard sermons on the story of the lost sheep that have spent three quarters of the time trying to reassure people that the 99 were safe somewhere. Friends, this, this isn't a sort of health and safety parable about looking after sheep. The whole point of the parable is that it's absolutely insane to leave 99 sheep in the open hillside and go after the one. That's the point of the thing. It would only be the craziest of shepherds that would do that. French Christians have a saying that they say to one another at Easter time. I think this is in Roman Catholic circles. Do you know what they say to one another? The love of God is folly. The love of God is folly. That's what we see in this story of the lost sheep. It makes no sense. It is insane. And part of the reason that Jesus tells this is if you're in the business of thinking, what is there about me that makes God loves me? You've got the wrong framework completely. 
The love of God is not a response or a reaction. The love of God has its source in God. Not in anything about you. So if you're a sheep, you don't have to wonder today, is my wool woolly enough for the shepherd to miss me? Are my horns, you know, do they look just a bit more special than the person next to me? If we think that way at all, we're in entirely the wrong framework. God does not love you because of anything that he sees. That will actually make some of you feel more insecure. His love actually comes from his own heart. It's not a response. It's not a reaction. You know, I have to say that although we, we talk about loving one another unconditionally, there's a lot of conditions in human love. I mean, when I asked for the hand of my wife in marriage, it was actually because I wanted the rest of her as well. It wasn't completely non-self-motivated. And so much of the love that we meet in human circles, so much of the love that we meet in church circles, is actually very different from a love that just is. Because God is love. It's nothing about you that makes him that. He is love. And yes, he can see things that move him with compassion, but it's not you create the compassion. It's there. And it's eternal. And it can never be altered. Friends, can I just ask you if, you, if you're perfectly honest about it, wh why should God love me? Some of you have maybe answered that positively. Well, I try and do this or that. Some of you have maybe answered it negatively. Well, I don't see why he should love me because I'm this or I'm that or I don't do this or I don't do that. If you've answered that question in terms of yourself at all, you've not got it yet. He just loves you because he loves you. Because God is love. He doesn't just love. He is love. This is a mystery that you see coming through all through the Bible. It's there in embryo form in the Old Testament where Israel actually was wondering, or at least we presume they were because God answered the wondering, why did God love Israel? He says in Deuteronomy 7, you know what? It's not because you're more numerous than other people. It's not because you're really particularly special in any way. I just love you because I love you. Don't ask me to explain it in any other way. I just love you because I love you. What about the other parable that we read then? In, uh, from the, the Bible there, Matthew chapter 20. Here's this story. Remember it. We don't need to go through it. Here's the story of the, the workers in the vineyard. And the vineyard owner comes and he hires men at various points of the day. And then at the end of the day, with one hour's work to, do, uh, to go, he hires these uh, men that nobody else has wanted to hire. They come in. They get a full day's wage. We know the conversation that results from that. 
you believe that God loves you because you're useful to him? These people weren't particularly useful. We can presume that nobody had hired them because it was just simple manual labor. Maybe they weren't particularly skilled even at that. Maybe they were lazy and not particularly productive. Is there any hint in you that God loves you because of your gift? That God loves you because of what you can contribute? Or have you seen the love of God is falling? It's not based on our usefulness. It's not based on what we can do for him. You know, there's this argument at the end, and just as um, the story of the sheep isn't about health and safety issues for sheep, that this isn't an H&R parable about hiring and firing and working conditions. It's about the generosity of the love of God. Sometimes I want to do a series of sermons and things that God himself doesn't understand. And it seems from this parable that there's something that Jesus can't understand. It's how can human beings become angry when God wants to be generous with his love? He doesn't get it. One of the people that I find really helpful in my Christian walk is Henry Nouwen. And uh, we'll be watching a clip of him uh, later on. And he says that he... Um, he actually has, uh, has told this parable to children. And you know what? They're all delighted with the story. They're just delighted that nobody gets left out at all. You see, if you get into this idea that it's about my usefulness or worth, that, that's the lie that I got hold of. Again, maybe I said this the first time it was here. That at the age of seven, I was completely carefree, completely carefree. And then between the age of seven and eight, something happened. And what happened was this. I came home from school 28 out of 30 in the class. I didn't see anything wrong with that. I, I really didn't. I mean, it, to me, it meant nothing. It was just a meaningless fact. However, my mother wasn't so pleased about it. And she's the most brilliant mum. I've had the most brilliant parents imaginable, but sometimes little ears and hearts hear things that were never meant. And I remember sitting at the dining room table, and she sort of thumped the table, and she said, but why? And I thought, well, why what? I don't even understand the question. And, and then this lie got hold of me. Oh, I didn't know that's the way the world worked. You're loved if, or you're loved when. You have to be successful. You have to achieve something. I'll tell you the effect of that. Age eight, I was first in the class. It meant nothing to me. It certainly brought no joy. Age nine, I was second in the class and felt a total failure. Age 10, I was first in the class again and felt a bit better. Carried that sort of strategy. This is how it works. You're loved if you're successful, if you achieve something. Carried that right through school, right through university. Right into ministry, I had to have a growing church. By 1994, with the fastest growing church in the Church of Scotland, it was very small to start with. That's the way statistics work. It was, it was fast growing in some ways. And somebody phoned me up from the church offices to say, did you know that your church has had the most new members in 
for most members by profession of faith in the whole denomination. In fact, it's showing the fastest statistical growth in money, in people, in everything, people going in for the ministry. And that was like the nail in the coffin for me. Because if you think that you're loved because you're doing something useful or you're achieving something, do you know what is? It's an ever-moving goalpost situation. When have I ever done enough? Or if you do reach some goalpost, what if you lose the ground? What if in another five years we're not the fastest growing church? And it was right at that point, it was my best and worst year, that God met me. And he took me into this new framework. Kenny, you're not loved because of your gifting. You're not loved because of your ministry. You're not loved because of your usefulness or success in the kingdom. I just love you because I love you. And up until that time, it was a bit like John Wesley, not as dramatic, uh, but it was a bit like that, that he said that at one point he had the religion of a servant. But after meeting God and the warming of his heart and so on, he said he had the religion of a son. Can I ask you, is God still the judge of your work? Or is he primarily father? And I'll never forget that year because the image of God, the disappointed judge, was just pushed aside forever. I know he is judge and I'll have to give an account. Don't get me wrong. But center stage came the face of the Father who loved me. I remember when somebody prayed for me and all this happened and I wasn't expecting it to happen. And I, I, this had never happened before either. I was just picked up and flung through the air. And I remember just what I shouted out. I just shouted out, oh, no. That's what I shouted out. And then I shouted out, at last. Because all this feeling of not being good enough, successful enough, achieving enough, was just pushed aside forever. It felt like every cell in my body was being loved by God. Just because he loves. Not because of anything I'd done. It wasn't withheld because of anything I'd done or not done either. So let me ask you, there's two parables in which we see the love of God. It just comes from him. It doesn't happen because you're a particularly lovely sheep. It's not based on your usefulness to the kingdom. Has that change of framework happened for you yet? And it may be that as we pursue this theme, one of the things that you have to, to think about is, wh where did it go wrong for you? Where did that image of self, image of God, where did that sort of cycle, where did that picture, where did it go wrong? I said to you that I, I really enjoy the... the um, the writings of Brennan Manning, who um, we're actually going to watch a clip at the end of this talk, uh, just a, a short clip just to help us focus and pray and seek God and so on. And uh, he was a Roman Catholic priest, and he's had a, a lifelong struggle with alcohol. He 
once fell really badly. And in that period of his life, he said he broke all the commandments. He just entered into the deceitfulness that, that, that's involved in heavy drinking and so on. But sometimes, you know, when you trace back a story, it's not excusing sin, but you see causes. And I've heard him speak about a time when he was four years old. Up until that point, he had never, and he said, I'm saying this without any hint of recrimination. He said simply, up until then, I had never once been kissed. I had never once been loved. I'd never once been told I was worthwhile. And then at the age of three, he said, I think it was in Brooklyn, he was, he was entered in for the most beautiful three or four-year-old competition, and he won. And he says, you know, well, it happened to be a lean year for boys, you know, <laughs> that particular year, but he won it. And for the first time ever, his mother threw a party for him for his fourth birthday. But, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> He wasn't allowed to ask any of his friends. It was all her friends that were asked. And each person, as they came in, they would pick him up and hug him, and uh, she would look disapprovingly because he would really latch on to them. And she would say to him, stop that. You're disgusting. Get over here. Eventually, one man came in. He picked up Ren in his arms, held him tightly, looked into his eyes and said, Brennan, you've got beautiful eyes. You're intelligent, you're clever, you're gifted. And one day God is really going to use you to bless a lot of people. And Brennan said that he just went mad. He was chewing the man's ear. He was pulling his hair. He was just clinging to him as though he was never going to let him go. His mother ripped him out the man's arm sent him to his bedroom, said, the party's over. Go to your room. You're disgusting. Went into the room as a four-year-old. It was dark. He was too small to put on the light. He was too afraid to get undressed in the dark, so he put his, his clothes on over his, his pajamas on over his clothes, got under the covers. Then a fear came to him. He said, I know what's going to happen soon. My mother's going to march into this room and demand that I give my party hat, that my party hat back, this two-cent party hat. He's never had one before. It meant the world to him. She's going to come in. She's going to demand that I give that hat back. Do you know what he heard Jesus? You know what he decided to do? He decided to do this. He decided to lie to his mother. That he would just hide it under the covers and say he must have lost it somewhere. Do you know what he heard Jesus say to him as he lay there feeling so guilty about the very idea that he would lie to his mother? He said to him, Brennan, I don't want to talk to you about that. Just you and I, let's play together just now. Years passed. His father was unemotionally attached to him. I mean, the most horrendous things. 
it a brother, and one day the mother of another father got in, said, see these boys, they've been annoying me all day. I want you to take the younger brother, Brennan's younger brother, I can't remember his name, take him down to the police station, tell the police to lock him up and throw away the key. Brennan got up at the window, full of fear, saw his father and his younger brother walking away. It was snowing, and about half an hour later, he saw his father coming back, no sign of his brother. Naturally, the brother was only another 50 yards behind, but at that point, root, uh, a root of fear and insecurity and anxiety got in. Horrendous childhood. The years pass, he's a priest, falls into alcoholism and all that went with that. Do you know what he heard Jesus say to him? Heard him say exactly what he'd said to me before you. Brennan, I, 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 I'm not wanting to speak to you about your alcoholism and your sin. Why don't you and I play together? You see, our God knows where sin and responsibility begin and end and where hurt and damage have their responsibility in the story. Friends, can I ask you, where did it go wrong for you? Where did the love if come in for you? And where did you feel, I, I don't quite manage to measure up to that, so... What hope is there for me ever to be truly, fully, completely loved? Where did the moving goalposts come in for you? Where did that image of me, image of God, where did that whole cycle actually begin to go very, very wrong? How do you know where it goes wrong? Well, here's a clue. When do you find yourself really getting upset emotionally? Really getting upset. And the way it works is this, that if you're wanting to work out where did the damage come, something happens to you, and it's maybe a factor one in terms of the input of the somebody saying something or doing something to you. It might be your husband, it might be a friend, it might be a work colleague, and they say something, do something, behave in a certain way, and it's maybe upset factor one. But your reaction is off the scale. Let me give you a couple of examples. There was a, a man in our church who's got a really, really troubled history. And uh, he's now part of our welcoming team. And it's great to have him as our a part of our welcoming team. And uh, he just began that two or three weeks ago. And the lady in charge of the, the welcoming team uh, said to him, Said Andy, it's it's maybe it's maybe good if you don't if you don't just hug everyone that comes into the church. Well, he walked out the church. Decided he was wasn't going to come back. So it was a factor one. But his reaction. But then he gave me this A4 page, and on one half it's got the way his mother spoke to him and the things that she said. And the other side, the way his father didn't behave towards him. It's not difficult to understand. Factor one cause. But off the scale reaction. 
me give you another example. It's a lady that um, I, I go to for counseling when I feel I need that. It's, it's good to have someone that you go to. And uh, she talked about to me about being holiday in, 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 on holiday in South Africa. And she was due to, she was there with a friend and they agreed they would meet up to go to a cinema. And the friend that forgot about that didn't turn up to go to the cinema. And the reaction was off the scale. How can I enjoy my holiday in South Africa? And our friend talked to her about it and said, you know, what, what's going on here? And she realized what was going on. That her own father in her own childhood was continually promising and that then not coming up with the goods. Promising outings, promising gifts, promising time. And then it just never happened. So she was able to do what she tells me to do. She was able to do. As a child, it's entirely appropriate I would have felt like that. But then you take a deep breath. As an adult, I choose not to do that. Friends, can I, can I just ask you, if, if we need to get real with God if this day is going to actually accomplish anything, but where do your reactions, where, where are they completely out of kilter, as it were, with whatever seems to cause them? Where do the reactions overflow and it takes you so long just to get them under control again? It's probably not the thing that you think it is. You need to ask God, Lord, why am I like this? Show me the root of this. Show me the cause of this. Because that's where your love really needs to come. Now, just as we end, if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 21. Because I, I think I've got a, a good news message to, begin, uh, to, to bring you today. And it, it's really just this. God, God actually loves the real you. And he doesn't want the bigger you, if I can put it that way. He actually wants the, the lesser you. Let's just look at the story of Simon Peter. His restoration. You know, Simon Peter had promised so much. He, he would have been the, he'd have been a darling at any evangelistic campaign. You know, he would have been rushing to the front saying, I'm going to give you everything, Jesus. You know, I'm going to follow you. There's nothing you're going to ask of me that I'm not going to do. I've been in ministry 30 years. I'm, I'm fed up with people giving the big decision now because it usually doesn't really work. God's not asking for any big decision from you today. He's not interested in the bigger you that will promise this, promise the earth, and even more to him. He, he just wants to meet the real you. Let's follow through this story of um, restoration. John chapter 21, verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And the word that Jesus used there is, is agape love. It's the, the word for self-surrendering, self-sacrificial love that would just withhold nothing. That's the sort of love 
that Simon Peter claimed to have. More than any of the other disciples, more than any other thing, he claimed to have this sacrificial surrendering love to Jesus. He made that big claim and that bold declaration, and now Jesus actually asks him about it in the light of what had happened is leaving Jesus at the hour of need and denying that he knew him. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now, the, the interesting thing is, is the reply in our English versions actually hides the fact that Simon Peter was at last becoming honest, and he gives a yes and no answer to Jesus. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but the word he uses there is not the word for self-sacrificial, that bold, withholding nothing love. It's just actually the word for friendship. Lord, I'm not going to use that big word. But I actually do believe this about me. Despite all that I've done, despite the failure, despite the shame, despite the pain I've caused you, I, I know I can't use that big word again. But Jesus, I, I know this is true. I want to be your friend. At this stage, I can't say any more than that. Because the past record shows that I'd be foolish to say more than that. But I'm sincere about this, Jesus. I do want to be your friend. So Jesus said, feed my lambs. Verse 16, again Jesus said to Simon, again Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He uses the agape word again. Simon does the same thing. He answers, yes, yes, and no, Lord, you know that I love you. I want to be your friend. Lord, that, that's, as, that's as far as I can say with confidence today. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you want to be my friend? He lets go the big word. He says, Simon Peter, we, we need to get real about this. Um, <clears throat> I'm coming to meet you at that level, but is it true? Do you really even want to be my friend? I'll accept that. Do you really even want to be my friend? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that what I'm really saying right now is absolutely true. I do want to be your friend. Jesus recommissions him on that lesser basis. Friends, it's very easy for preachers to stand up and give some sort of emotional appeal to give everything. I wonder if you were to be really honest before God today. Where are you with him? You, you've had your hands in the air worshipping him, but, but where, where is your heart? Isn't it good to know that Jesus actually looks for the lesser you and the lesser me? And he takes us on board there. Because that's the real you and the real me 
And it's not the end you or the end me where we're going to end up. Because Simon came to the point, Simon Peter came to the point where he did have a gaffy love. And he actually laid down his life. And the legend says that when he was being led out to be crucified, he said, I'm not worthy to die the same way as my Lord. He said, we can soon fix that. And crucified him upside down. Jesus said that day was coming. It's coming a day when instead of running off, when you're under threat, people are actually going to bind you and carry you where you don't want to go. But this was at last the relationship getting real. Can I just say that God the Father can only love the real you. He, he lives in reality. He can't love the pretend you because the pretend you doesn't exist. He wants to love the real you. And that means he loves you where you are right now. We're just going to watch a clip of Brennan Manning and uh, then we'll lead into a time of ministry and prayer. I'll pray first of all, but let's just listen to this together. Just a short clip, but try and get hold of what he's saying. After a lifetime's ministry, what he most wants people to know about the love of God. In the 48 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus, in a little chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania, and in literally the thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence, and solitude over those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question, and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? The real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I try to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are going to have to reply, <coughs> well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's a difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image, and he wants us to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. 
In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and Honest, the God of so many Christians I meet, is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame. We've lost a bit there. He goes on and says, shame, pain, degraded love. And he says, at this moment, God is coming right to your seat. And he's beside you and he's saying, I love you as you are, not as you should be. None of us are ever going to be what we should be. Let's just shut our eyes gently in the presence of God. I don't know what we'll do in the next 10 minutes. It may be we'll um, just be in his presence. may not be we'll, we'll get to the place of saying come forward and let people pray. We'll just see. There'll be plenty of time throughout the day. And I invite you just to think for a moment, where did that then? You know, we've heard there about Blaise Pascal, God made man in his own image, and we promptly return the favor. It's not a favor he asks us to return. Where, where did the image of God, image of self, image of God circle? Where are you needing help with that? Maybe even, how did that go wrong in the first place? Let's just think about that for a few moments. Look at these unbounded emotional things for you. We end up in pain and saying, I'm sorry, but it happens again. Out of scale reaction or upset. But let's just think, where, where did it go wrong? The God, the true God is coming. And in his presence, it's safe to think about that. As he comes to your seat, to love you as you are, not as you should be. Bless the real you. So let's just think in a, for ourselves in just a moment, sir. As we remain in silence, let's just keep our eyes shut so we can focus and There's several things that, as we just sit in the Lord's presence, he wants me to say. So there's a specific thing, first of all. I think there's someone here, and because of your pain today is how your husband says your name, or how he doesn't say your name. It's just a, a specific thing that came to me. These are things I felt God has given me to say before coming to you. He wants to say, I, I know the deeper story than others know. Others know only what they see and even misunderstand that. I know why right now you may even fear to use the word love. 
even with me. That is okay. One day that word will be the only word that can sum up your relationship with me. But for now, for this very day, will you just be a friend to me? This is for some of us too. Your shames and pains, failures and regrets, however public, however humiliating, do not mean we cannot walk and talk together. One day you'll realize that I am in you and you are in me. But for today, let us walk and talk together and see what happens. Will you just walk with me? And then I think God wants some of us to hear this. You are unique. My kingdom needs you. I can use you, not at some far off point, but this very day. I am not looking for another. I am not looking for another you. I can use you. Will you let me? Most of all, I think God wants us to hear this. I love you as you are, not as you should be. Nor only for the person you may yet become. I love you as you are. Do you believe that I have loved you? There's two incidents coming to mind again. Let's just focus so we're not distracted. Just let God work in whoever's beside you. Just um, a couple of incidents from Wester Hills where it's, life is difficult for a lot of people and has been for most of their lives. It's uh, an incident outside the church and I saw on the CCTV just a man sort of angrily speaking to a wee gang of children that come to us just on their own. He went out to see what was happening. He was just Oh, the language was off when he was just saying that their son had been playing with them and he was meant to be at home and they were protecting him. And I thought, well, what sort of son needs protected from their father? But anyway, I told him the son was his responsibility. He wasn't very happy about that. He wandered off swearing at me as much as he'd been swearing at the children. Went into the church again, just watched out the window to make sure he was going and not coming back to them. And I was hit with the love of God for that man. There was a blazing love in the heart of God for him. A love that I didn't have. Because God is love. Thirty minutes later, the service was ended and a drunk lady came in, sat down beside me. And I was tired and my heart was just, it was just saying, I really can't be bothered with this. I'm tired, I can't be bothered fighting through all the, the nonsense that goes with drunken talk. I really cannot be bothered. I'm too tired. And again, I was hit with the blazing love of God for that woman. 
And I just sat there and God said to me, I, I didn't ask you to do anything for her, but will you let me? And I felt the love of God going through me and she broke down. And told the story of how at 19 she'd been raped and actually locked up in a room for four years. And I'm reminded of a, someone I know who's a paramedic and they were being vomited over by a drunk and they found themselves saying to this person, you know, in the Bible I read my God loves you and I can't understand why. But that's the love of God. Not a reaction to you other than compassion comes from his heart. And he comes to tell you, I love you full stop. Not just because I see what you can become. But I love you right now. And Father, I pray that just in the rest of this day, friends, I, I think it's it's too close, really, to, to coffee time to allow um, a come to the front ministry, but we'll allow, I'll allow more time for that in the second session. Father, by your Holy Spirit, just help us to hold on to a kingdom seed that you give us. Not to lose it in coffee or talk, but we pray that the coffee and the talk will be blessed, Lord. We, we don't want this only to be a a, a serious day for you to work in us. May it be a joyful day for we enjoy just being with other people. But Lord, may the birds of the air not swoop down and take away the kingdom seed. Help us to hold whatever you've spoken, to hold on to that seed. Because it will be fruitful for ourselves. <coughs> And actually, we'll have more than enough grain so we can even plant it into other lives. So right as we close, what do you feel God has said to you that you must not let go? Father, will you help us to speak about ourselves and living echoes of your soul? If we keep on pouring negative words upon ourselves, help us to stop doing that. May we speak of ourselves, speak to ourselves as the beloved of God. So, Father, if we're in the habit of this, these thoughts that go round and round our head about ourselves, if we're in the habit of taking them and then speaking them over ourselves, Lord, the power of life and death is in the tongue. Help us not to keep speaking words of death over ourselves, but to speak words of life. The words you speak to us, they are spirit and they are life. So I pray, Lord, not only may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, but Lord, I pray that for all of us. 
May the words of our mouths that we speak over ourselves and about ourselves and about ourselves to one another, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, love us as we are, where we are right now today. Take the lesser us, the real us. Who knows where we'll yet get to. That's not important. Just meet us where we are today. In Jesus' name. Amen.